0: Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. I'm Chris. And I'm Aaron. And this week, you're teasing out Chapter 27. And to catch you up, Parsifal has just come from the second gate, emerging in now an empty and silent Tyrell office. After passing the test, playing the super VR version of Black Tiger and receiving the last clue, a crystal key spinning inside of a glowing red star, which is not the key itself, but a hint to where to find the crystal key. So he jumps in his ship. The Vonnegut and heads for the nearest Stargate, while pulling up his records on the Canadian rock band Rush. And as you already know, having read this chapter, this chapter is dedicated to the band Rush. And this is described as Halliday's favorite band. It's it's interesting because prior episodes, Ryan prophetically believed that Ernest Klein wrote himself into the books as Halliday. You remember. Remember that theory that he had about, I don't know, 10 episodes back where he thought, you know, that that was the character he thought that that Ernest Klein was portraying himself as in the book? I vaguely remember that. I thought it was interesting because I think every author, maybe not every author, but I think a lot of authors write themselves in favorably into one character. They speak through lots of characters and all those characters might be facets of the author, which speaks volumes about Stephen King, but uh-huh. I think there's <laughs> I think there's it, it, for some authors there's one character that's really trying to tell the story of the author, really that, that's really speaking is allowing the author to speak through them. I should say allowing I mean the author's writing them in, but but you just it becomes the the voice of the author, and Ryan had pitched. I remember this correctly, that Halliday was Ernest Klein and that this was an homage to all the things that Ernest Klein loved. So what I, I found interesting here is that we have this chapter that's completely dedicated to Russia. And I and One of the places where I think this speaks very much to Ernest Cline, aside from the fact that it's that it's no surprise if you've heard him talk on the subject, he is a huge fan of Rush, so this lends credence to the fact that Halliday reflects Ernest Cline as the character within the book, probably the closest. But one of the things I thought was cool—have you seen the movie Fanboys? Of course. Okay, so you remember Hutch, right? Uh, Actor who Dan Fogel, who plays the guy that ends up driving the the Millennium Falcon van. Uh, out to Skywalker Ranch in order to try to to sneak in and watch the movie episode episode yes, one episode, episode one. one yeah one <laughs> episode one. If
1: only they advance. knew.
0: If only. <laughs> I love how the end of that movie uh, wraps oh, yeah. <laughs> up too. That that
1: <laughs> that was great. Uh,
0: you know, it's not so much the kid. Spoiler alert! Uh, it's not so much the kid dying. I thought it was funny is that the kid dies knowing what's going to happen and it's just like the shittiest in-joke that one person could possibly have but anyhow so moving on it, it, when, when we look back at other things that ernest klein has written like like fanboys i think hutch best reflects him like all the other characters tell the story but hutch is like the core the the trunk of that story he's not the the topic he's not the focus necessarily but he's the thing that reflects Ernest Cline the most. And I think the thing that leaks through there in expressing that is the fact that Hutch loved Rush. And there was a quote in the movie where he says, rule number one in my van, it's Rush. all Rush all the time, no exceptions. Rule number two, nobody touch the red button. Now, that also is somewhat prophetic because <laughs> this will be the second book slash movie where there's a big, the red, big button red button involved. Oh, we got. And he goes on to see. I mean, out, never. I, no, no. It's, okay. It, it, if you've if you've not seen the movie, and you've not read the book by now. Eh. Uh, and I mean, never touch the red button. Most importantly, rule number three: there's no jerking it in my van. <laughs> That's a
1: good rule, no matter what.
0: I, yeah, I was about to say that. Seems like it, that feels like it should go without saying. You know. You would think. like, like you would look back and you go, dude. You can do that in anyone else's car, or van. Don't do it in mine. This is the place where that's an exception. No jerking it in my van. That's one of the rules. Like you would need. It's a bit like one of those signs that they put up on, on a on a, just along the outside of a lake that's covered in ice, that says, "Don't go on the ice. You will break, and they will break, and you will die." And somebody paid five thousand dollars both for the design and the development of that sign and the installation. And the reason being is because some jackhole went on to the ice, it broke, and someone died. So I kind of wonder, if that yeah. is a rule... It came from somewhere. Under what circumstance did that rule have to be formed?
1: Well, it, is, like, it was a van full of teenage boys.
0: Like, there's that one exception, that one situation. He goes, you know what, after that, I've got to add it to my list of rules. Now there are three exactly
1: <laughs> so what uh, my thought about this whole rush 2112 and it being a reflection on uh ernest klein as a person and por- portraying himself in his characters h- having gone to a lot of author talks uh or events where they talk about how they got into writing like the theme that i hear often is that they often will for a first book, write what they know, so what do they mm-hmm. know better than anything but it's themselves
0: sure it's their story they're they're telling their story from their position through characters, and that was when I was listening to Kevin Smith, who some would argue doesn't don't doesn't belong in the book uh who who are you talking about there Kevin Smith yeah no who,
1: Toma, who who's the no one that Kevin doesn't Smith think is? that he
0: belongs in the book? I think maybe John had mentioned that that seemed that it was. No, unusual. that was me. Oh, that was you. That was, that was fucking you. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I think, I think the
1: argument was that because he was such a, uh, um, enthusiast of the same types of me, the same programs, you know, comic books, movies, all that stuff that, and all of his movies have been referencing those things that he was kind Mm -hmm. of by association appropriate Mm -hmm. uh i would still say that no he he doesn't fit with these other guys
0: easy one of these things is not like the other you're saying that was me i said
1: that i said one of these is not like the other and and he he even gives his whole list and then says and of course kevin's last
0: but not least Kevin Smith.
1: He uh, to me, he sticks out like a sore thumb. Like there's these
0: really you feel like it should be last, and he should be least. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay.
1: But the, and, well, and we never hear any other real Kevin Smith references in the book.
0: There are none that stick out of my head. I want to think that there are, but I I I, I, I think that Kevin Smith goes for the same kind of angle that Ernest klein does. So if Ernest klein maybe is saying, look, it's not necessarily his movies that I'm that I'm. I'm going to spin in here and make um, canon. It's the fact that here's another person who is speaking to what they know and to what they love. And it's it's 80s reference. It's pop culture references. It's comic books. So, so, like it's a it's a kinship. He's you know, a like, brother here's, from another mother. Here's my brother from another mother, Kevin Smith. <laughs> exactly. So these aren't the things I admire. This is almost like who I'm related to in in my soul, Maybe. They're so Oasis brothers. That. They're Oasis brothers. I, I could see that kind of. Oh, but Kevin Smith actually said when when talking to people, like he'll go and he'll do talks across schools across the U.S. I guess, you know, when it comes time for the, the house payment, he, you know, goes off and does a <laughs> some country. Gotta don't, get a new book. Don't boat. fucking laugh, dude. My, like I, I went and he talked for like four hours straight and he was fucking phenomenal. He tells great stories. His delivery is spectacular he's such an amicable guy and a friendly dude and the audience was great when he came to knoxville my wife got me tickets we went and he was awesome but when when asked you know what to write about his was you know write about what you know and at the time that he wrote clerks that's what he knew he yeah. worked at that convenient store they had to do the movie in the middle of the night because yep. the next morning he had opened the store that's why they put the The wood in front of the glass that says, believe me, we're open. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's because they filmed it at night, but they couldn't show that through the window. So it that's just, actually kind of interesting. Like...
1: I hadn't thought about the, the parallel with uh, Zach and Miriam make a porno, because that's what they do at the coffee shop. They film the porno in the coffee shop at night, and then they open the store the next day and work there.
0: Holy fuck. No, I didn't think about that. Uh, Yeah. So that's kind of yeah, that's kind of meta. It's a movie about making a movie, granted, a porno. But that's interesting. I hadn't thought about yeah, that. Yeah, I hadn't and
1: thought about it, it to this second either. because I don't think he directed it, but he produced it or something. Maybe yeah, wrote it.
0: Like he was there with them. Absolutely. In fact, he had a he had a quip about how he was hanging out with who was it? Seth Rogen. Yep.
1: And, um, and Elizabeth Banks. They hadn't.
0: And they hadn't talked about Potter smoking pot at all and then he was like hey you know like it was almost like a nervous like like hey do you want to go and smoke a joint and hang out for a while and and they eventually did but thinking that that would be like something that would come up from at the very beginning but it didn't it didn't require kind of like wrapping up the the movie but he was totally there with them and and i think he was either directing yeah, yeah i'm pretty sure he wrote it i don't know yeah he did something like uh, oh, anyway horribly underrated movie fantastic movie but the gist to your point was right to what you know and Ernest Klein does that very well. He writes to what he knows, so much so. He doesn't just write to what he knows from a factual perspective. He writes to what he loves. Oh, yeah. And in this, he's writing to Rush, his love for Rush. Now, something I didn't realize until I talked to my wife earlier today, because I knew very little about Rush going in. And having listened to some of Rush's music, I'm just, it, it's not what I like. It's not my kind of music. It's not that I don't like them; it's just it doesn't grab me. But a uh, uh, interesting point though, today is Geddy Lee's birthday. Ah, oh, no kidding. He is sixty five years
1: old. Ah, oh, oh nice. Happy birthday.
0: Yeah, happy birthday. But I thought it was cool. We're like, I'm going through Rush, shoes, and I'm asking her, "Do you know anything about Rush?" She's like, "Yeah, I have some of the albums," and and she wasn't like super into them, but as an as the audiophile that she is. She knew of them and had some of the music, listened to some of it, and, and knew some bits. And then she texted me a little while ago, and she said, and it's his birthday today. I was like, oh, that's that's some some really cool fucking coinciding shit right there. Yeah. Yeah, super, super, not ironic, but cool coincidences, right? Exactly. So something I thought that was really neat uh that they brought up and it was just a single sentence but it jumped out at me is that he said how they coded the oasis while listening to rush there wasn't a bit of code that he wrote that wasn't listening to rush and i get that as a programmer uh there are certain songs and certain bands that get me in the zone and because those songs kind of bring out or inspire the most out of me, they kind of help bring out the best work within me. Like I feel like I can get my work done better and faster and everything just starts to make sense while I'm listening to it. I think a big part of that is that I associate music with experiences. So some songs I have experiences and then I use that into my In the Zone mix because it helps to bring me to that place.
1: It, it, is salt and pepa in that? list for you because i think you mentioned them before
0: they used to be
1: that's for your gaming
0: long time ago and occasionally occasionally come up and i'll have flashbacks to an early teenage youth playing shitty three-color digital video games of flying helicopters and blowing up boxes that are supposed to be tanks well and, and, and i played this game so much that it was the large five and a half or five and a quarter inch floppy disk Whoa. And I'd put my, I would put the floppy disk in. I had used this disk so often that I'd listen to the drive spin the disk and I'd hold my finger down. This is where the part of the disk, like there was a U-cut uh, in the drive where the disk would stick out so you could flip mm-hmm. the lever and grab the disk and pull it out. I would push down on the disk to slow it down so that the computer would pick it up because I played it so often it had corrupted it. So I would listen to the drive, spin the disks, and I knew just how to press it down enough to slow down the disk in order to get it to read the game and get it loaded in. And then once it was loaded in, I was good to go. I think we
1: might have to give a little bit of a uh, PSA to all the younger listeners that have no idea what you're talking about when you mention these five and a quarter inch floppy disks.
0: Oh, uh, I don't even know where to begin. Uh,
1: Look it up on Wikipedia. Kids be (laughs)
0: glad... Be glad you don't have to use them. Oh, thank yeah. They were they were the just the weakest freaking just weak ass discs. It
1: made the just three and a half inch floppies look like the most amazing thing on the planet.
0: The three and a half inch floppies were were the most amazing thing on the planet, man. They were awesome. They held like a meg and a half.
1: That's true. Yeah, I was like, and then you could punch a hole in them and double the space. <gasps> Remember that?
0: Hold on is that where the little tab at the top was?
1: Uh, I think so. But there was a tab for like locking the content and then
0: um, right, right, right. you could
1: punch a hole in it. And I think some companies sold like a hole puncher for it uh, because yeah. that was what told it to use the second side.
0: I want to think I'd heard that, but I, I, I don't remember the hole part. That's, that's fucked up, but that's super cool. Uh, Anyhow. That was the that moving that on. was as
1: deep as I got
0: into hacking. what <laughs> was punching holes in your discs <laughs> uh I can't even it's it's like it's almost like a little disk envelope that's made out of plastic, yeah, like in this little square disc envelope is a disc and it spins it's like a record in a square.
1: How much memory did a it's... five and a quarter inch floppy hold?
0: Oh dude, hold on, five point two five inch floppy i uh, let's make a bet. Let's because I'm looking it up. Obviously, I'm going to YouTube. I'm going to Google's it. Yeah. I think it was. I think it was a half a meg.
1: I was going to say like I thought it was like 512 kilobytes was like the max.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you and I are on it. A half meg. Right. Yeah. All right. Hitting the Googles. Five and a quarter inch floppy. My bad. And it held. Oh, fuck. How much did it hold? Where is it? Do I need
1: to do this shit for you?
0: Shut up. I got this. I got this. All right. The most common capacity for the five and a quarter inch. Oh, uh, we were, we were a bit, well, we weren't we, that far we, off. We were about half, about half off, dude. 360K. But then they had high density
1: sizes that were 1.2 megabytes.
0: Yeah. 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 I'm seeing a 1.4, but yeah. Huh. And then there was the double-sided, which was 2.8. But still, wow. Crazy. 2.8 megabytes. You couldn't fit one picture. One picture from your phone would not fit on this disc, dude. Is not that just freaking mind blowing? I'm truly. pretty sure that
1: if you if you open up like a uh a notepad um yeah, you know, open up your notepad application and wrote out your show notes, you probably uh I don't know. Maybe you would get up to that point. I've, I'm maybe. Maybe probably not even close uh, to think of it
0: yeah I mean, most that. of the shit you stored on there were really but keep in mind like the images and shit were just really dithered and and resolution was really low so a big picture would look really small by today's standards yeah.
1: all i gotta say is that all you young kids that didn't have to go through all this and have you know little usb Freaking drives welcome. with tons and tons and tons of space fuck you <laughs>
0: Dude, when the when the floppy disk came out, it was freaking brilliant. Cause I had a, I had a, I had a TI ninety nine that didn't have a disk drive. I had to plug in a tape recorder. Whenever I programmed shit for fun, it's hard to imagine saying that today. In fifth grade, when I turned the computer off, that was it. Memory gone. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't even have the. I didn't have that recorder. I might add, that was a part of my setup. So uh, it was. You know, freaking floppy disk came out, I was like, Oh my god, all the space. Anyhow. To move on, I thought it was cool that that he'd mentioned that Rush was what he listened to the entire time that he wrote The Oasis. And for me, I have I have bands where I would listen to and songs that I currently listen to that get me into the zone. Um Lincoln Park was one I listened to very heavily. You know, I I'm not like I'm not a huge fan of Linkin Park now. I was a huge fan. I'm still a fan of the band for sure. I've just not followed them nearly as closely. But it's one of the few, their albums that came out were the few that I could listen to the entire album. And I enjoyed nearly all of them, nearly all the songs.
1: So when Parzival was talking about all the different Rush albums and videos and things that he had,
0: Oh, God. Yeah.
1: Were you just sitting there wondering, God, how much space is this taking on your goddamn hard drive?
0: I was really more thinking, that takes a lot of time. Yeah.
1: Like, how do you watch it, all that? But... Listen to all that? Read all that? That's a lot.
0: Yeah. And yet we already know Parsifal collects a ton of stuff, you know, per the book, per the storyline, per the character. But he, with, with the author speaking through the characters, it, it makes you wonder... You know, is he just writing to the obsessiveness of this character? Like, Parzival didn't have to be a huge fan, right? Mm -hmm. Halliday was a huge fan. He could have expressed this through Halliday. But in this situation, Parzival is a gargantuous fan. And maybe that's because through the story, Parzival's trying to be a proxy for Halliday to understand him. Thus, has everything, every video, every minute, every album, every Christmas special, you know, uh, everything. Good and bad. A Rush Christmas. And evidently special. with Rush, it's all I know. I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm exaggerating there. But if you're a huge Star Wars fan, you've got copies of the, the Christmas Star Wars special. You might even have you know, Caravan it... of Courage. Oh, you might. You might. I liked Caravan of Courage. I was not a fan of the Christmas special. So Or even it... the one where Mark Hamill comes on to the to the uh Muppet Show. So
1: as far as musical obsessions go, if Ernest Klein and um James Halliday and Parzival are all huge Rush fans. What artist for you is that one that you have all the bootlegs, all the albums, the books, the everything? What's the one that comes closest for you?
0: Well, here's the thing is that, like, I've got m- movies that I'm like that with. I've got, obviously, I have video games that I'm like that with. But when it comes to music, I'm incredibly selective. Now, if Ryan was here, he could speak to huge lengths of that. If John was talking, we maybe should have brought him onto the show for this point specifically. He's also deep into certain artists. Me, I don't have that obsession. But I'll tell you what, I am married to someone who does. Oh, I am a. Wait, hold that. I am married to someone who, who has the deep cuts, the extended tracks, the, the you know the ones where it's just you know the one record with the one song on each side. Uh, has videotapes of all of the interviews, recordings of all the interviews, all the online stuff. It just, you know, record after record. And in this household, the name of that band is Duran Duran.
1: Of course. Of course. Should have seen that one coming. And every,
0: you should have. I, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't mention it before I got to it. But that is, that is the obsession in this household, is Duran Duran. From From its inception early, early on in the 70s to current day even. Current day even. Anytime they release an album, they still release my stuff. wife is front and center. Oh, every two years. Practically on the When dock. they got to buy they'll the new boat. release something, they'll tour. When they got to buy the <laughs> When it's time to make the house payment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they'll put out a record. They'll go on tour. And then they'll take a little break and they'll produce more music. And then they'll put out a record and go on tour and they'll play an assortment of the old stuff and the new stuff and stuff from the relatively new that did really well, they cover it. I'll tell you what, it's one of the few bands I think today is better than they were in the 80s. Interesting. It's hard to say that about most bands. They've just never stopped, and they've gotten better. Okay. It's weird. And they continue to produce good music. Now, granted, I'm not as big a fan as Duran Duran as my wife is, obviously, but when we talk about posters and books and biographies and autobiographies and interviews and all of the albums and the weird shit and the stuff that's released in Japan, we have got that in Duran Duran. Wow. Yeah.
1: So I get it. I was definitely not like that with Duran Duran. However.
0: Who were you like that with? uh,
1: For a period of time in my uh, teens and early, early, I don't know if you even made it to my early 20s, but I was collecting tons of pink floyd like i have cassette tapes of bootlegs i have you know i i bought cds that like bootleg cds that were like professionally done to some extent i have all sorts of concerts Uh, i think i might even have a video from a concert of the wall from early night very early 1980s where. you know, got to actually watch the wall come down and all that, which was really neat. Um, what else did I, I? I have a box of this stuff. I don't even know where it is anymore. My guess is it's probably back in my parents' house in their basement. Just tons of cassette tapes of Pink Floyd mm. recordings, and I don't even know if I ever listened to all of them. I was just like collecting them because it just felt good to collect them.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Now the wall it. I, I, I'm not a huge Pink Floyd fan, but there is something about it that I find similar to Rush. And that is that Pink Floyd's The Wall, as I understand it at least, and Rush's 2112 are similar in that they tell a story.
1: Well, yeah, they're, I think they will both frequently end up in, this, in the same uh, top 10 list of best concept albums.
0: Right. And I love that idea, and I was talking with my wife about that, in that what I what I find interesting and what I find as, as sort of a, an Easter egg, a musical Easter egg, is that somebody could pick up the album and as a concept album, listen to it or listen to a couple songs from it and think, man, these are really good songs. But then to know that it's a bit like a musical without any of the in-between dialogue, and that one song moves into the next song as if it's telling a story, and that you're... The songs aren't about unrequited love or love lost or any number of just crappy things you could speak to. It actually speaks to an epic that is trying to be described through the music and that the music's trying to portray this sort of audible feeling for. And I really liked that about The Wall. And again, not a huge Pink Floyd fan. But I love that about the wall and I love that about I love that 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 Rush did that as well, that this has become kind of this nested meta info about the music itself. And I really like the fact that the synchronization between the wall and uh, the Wizard of Oz. It wasn't the wall No, have you done it, that? that was uh, Dark Side of the Moon. It wasn't the wall, that was Dark Side of the yeah, Moon.
1: And I'll tell you, I've done that a few times and it's crazy
0: is it creepy? It is, I've not done it. I've wanted oh, to, you gotta, but I feel like I would need to drink a little bit to make it happen. Uh, I mean, really uh, make it happen. You got to
1: do it cuz it's just like it's mind bending. It's like they had to have done something to make that work because it's it's too coincidental.
0: Now, was it the wall that was the storytelling album? Yeah, that was or... the one.
1: It was basically a Roger Waters narrative uh, that had to doing had to do with I think the I think it's supposed to be about the death of his father in World War II, but mm-hmm. I've also heard some conflicting stories about it. And honestly, if you had asked me 20 years ago, I could tell you a whole lot more about it, but it's been a little while. So I'm not the expert. I
0: thought Dark Side of the Moon was also a sort of a storytelling album, or was it not? I am I thinking think it wrong? So. It's been a while since I've listened. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting nonetheless. So, and I really I dig the concept. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, uh, dialing back to where we were talking about the programming of the Oasis, listening to Rush. The one, the one thing that I that came to mind when reading that was there's an episode of the TV show Chuck. You know, are you familiar with that show?
0: Is that the one where Chuck sees a, a series of images and from a friend of his that was a spy, and now he contains all kinds sort of crazy of, yeah. information. Yeah, he gets a set of spies are like assigned to him to work menial jobs at fast food restaurants to keep an eye That's on exactly them. the show
1: yeah he
0: that show went from cool to stupid so oh fast. yeah
1: like the first oh. two seasons are great and after that it's just stupid but anyway it's... i i liked the show i thought it was cool
0: uh-huh. uh, at
1: least for those first two seasons but there's this episode uh i'm gonna try to read i'll i'll relay what my my quick thoughts on the plot and then i can read through the actual plot if you want but Mm -hmm. there's this episode which is it's called chuck versus tom sawyer tom sawyer rush and rush right at at some point in the show there's secret codes in some arcade game and it's missile command to play the to play the game and to beat it like Listening to Rush or the the song "Tom Sawyer," like put you in the right rhythm to beat the game.
0: Oh, oh wow! So you had to listen to the song to put you into the rhythm in order to beat the game.
1: Yeah, and I might be totally <sighs> bastardizing the thing, but then the the guy who was supposed to be the expert at playing it, who won a contest thousand years ago, couldn't play the game in this like weird orchestrated contest, so they could see the codes because like some bomb was going to go off. So then Chuck plays it and he asks somebody to put tom sawyer on and that's uh, he beats the game he gets these codes and mm. they stop the bomb big shock
0: wow that's cool i love that idea
1: yeah it, it's uh, it's season awesome. two episode five and another cool thing about that episode was they go to like the office of the original programmer of that game and he's like walking through the office trying to like See if the guy's there. And in the background, you see Ultraman. Cool. Yeah.
0: That's interesting.
1: You can cut that out because you clearly are not as impressed with that as I am.
0: I'm 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 trying to get my head wrapped around it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, like like there's like these shelves with all these like game paraphernalia and all this like Japanese uh pop culture pieces in it. And That's you see a... You see, of I think it was a, you know, like a five foot, six foot tall figure of Ultraman, like in the background, blurry, and I was like, "Oh shit, there's Ultraman."
0: Of of the tele from the television from from the show
1: from the from the nineteen sixties or seven early seventies version of the television show.
0: Huh, that's cool. I probably would so have that, totally missed that. Was that? I mean, yeah. that, that was in that was in Chuck.
1: That was in Chuck, and I. Thankfully, it was watching it on Netflix or Amazon or something. So I was like, wait a minute, I think I see Ultraman. And I found him. It was like a few frames, but he was there.
0: It's it's neat that there's a, an ebb and flow to it, it. It's neat how how certain books and media will trigger you into the sensitivity of seeing certain things elsewhere. So ever since this book, not so much the movie, but the book, and then talking with a lot of people who've read the book, talking to you guys who listen to it to get a little meta there for a moment, step outside, uh, that now I have a far greater sensitivity to the weird connections. Like there's a a ton of more dots that I can now connect lines to. So for example, when you watch the show Chuck and we've got the song from Rush that comes through and it's about beating a video game and then Ultraman is in the background, it's just... It, it, you, you drew some dots that would not have been there, maybe, if you had not read the book. Yeah. Hence the reason why you're bringing it up, I assume.
1: Yeah. Well, in my mind, Chuck is the TV show version of Ready Player One. It is just ripe with references to the exact same stuff.
0: Ah. Do you think that's more so now, after the book came out, that there that there might have been slight influence because it seems as the book came out and maybe more people became sensitive to, and again, it an awareness, like a heightened awareness to the referential material, a greater appreciation well, for that period of time. Connecting to showed, identity. Go ahead. So the,
1: ep- the episode I'm talking about was season two and it aired in October of t- 2008. So this was before, so no. this was before Ready Player <laughs> One came out, but would have been while he was writing the book.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so you think that it'd be maybe in reverse almost, like aside from him already having this deep appreciation for these things anyhow, that it's it. You just, you never know. I think this is why some artists, some musicians, refuse to listen to music while they're trying to be creative, because in the absence of other music, you're allowed to be purely inspired rather than the potential for other music and inspiration to leak in and Mm. you come out thinking, well, this sounds very original and all of a sudden it sounds like something else that you maybe heard and just didn't remember. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, And, and to kind of wonder maybe, you know, if there are instances in other authors where they're exposed to something and then that kind of leaks through into their own material. I don't know. That's cool. I like, I kind of like where the point went, even though when you mentioned it, I was kind of like, that's an interesting coincidence, uh, but I think, but I think now that there's like a heightened sensitivity on our end, and maybe for those that listen, that you'd see new dots appearing, connecting things together, you know, uh, like a conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theorists wet dream, is, <laughs> is a, a disconnected world all of a sudden looking like it connects in the weirdest fucking ways. And then buying into it and going, wait a second, maybe that shit's related. Uh, Anyhow. uh, Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. All right. So moving on. So he's off to. Yeah, go ahead. So we've got the album 2112. It is a seven part song, seven part album. That's 20 minutes and 33, 33, almost said 33 seconds. (laughs) 20 minutes and 33 seconds in length. And right off the bat, he gets the clue based on the lyrics from the title song, The Temples of Syrinx. We are the priests of the Temple of Syrinx. Our great computers fill the hallowed halls. We are the priests of the Temples of Syrinx. All the gifts of life are held within our walls. All right. So to point here, I really love the metaphors in this book. I think the metaphors themselves are like these freaking awesome nested Easter eggs. They're kind of this meta level of information. We've talked about this before, but follow me as I go along on this small conspiracy theory bit. But I find that there are streaks of religious overtones to the book, not necessarily pointing to any one religion per se, but bringing in the symbolism to sort of build up its own construct. So before we talked about uh, Anorak and sort of the position he has in the Oasis. And I, I don't know if we've necessarily said it out right, but the, the idea that I think Anorak has kind of become something like the, the digital Jesus in, in this book. I, oh, follow me. Just freaking follow uh, me here, uh, okay? I'm here. I'm here with you. Here. He, has a, he has his own fucking Bible. He has the miserable masses that are following him. And what are they doing? They're looking for heaven slash the Oasis, and they're looking for salvation within it. They're looking for the Easter egg. That is their salvation, right? Mm -hmm. And what I think is neat is that the lyrics of the song sort of relate to this priesthood of technology whose computers hold the gifts of life, which is very similar, metaphorically speaking, to the Oasis, that is this virtual life that has its own set of nested gifts to be found. And that... You, you know, Anorak is sort of the priest of the temple, you know, digital Jesus slash priest, or that maybe the Gunters are the priests of this temple. Now well, the Gunters are probably the closer to the priests here. They're the ones that are trying to uphold what is sacred, which is everything that Anorak considered to be sacred. And thus they want the oasis to be what it should be, not what some corporate company is going to come in and make it, which is their advertising platform to sort of defile this heaven, if you will. And I just... I just kind of wanted to circle back around that there's just kind of this neat vein, this semi religious or eh, we'll just use that word, semi religious vein. Uh, And you have this sort of order. And one of the priests, if you will, Parzival, one of the high priests has now come across Rush and Rush as itself is a, a song speaking to technology and the priests that uphold this technology. Anyhow, I just, I thought that was kind of neat, that there's a sort of circular metaphor going on. It's just a neat little streak that runs through the storyline like that.
1: So I had a slightly different interpretation of the story behind the 2112 suite than you did. Mm-hmm. So I looked at it as the, the priests of the temples of Syrinx is almost like a warning of what's going to happen if IOI takes over the Oasis because they're the ones that are saying, we're telling you what to think. Uh, We we take care of everything, the words you read, the songs you sing, the pictures that give pleasure to your eye, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So that's them having taken control over what was once the, 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 the the beautiful thing of the Oasis. Right. And they, they say, look around this world. We've we've made equality. Uh, Come and join the brotherhood of man. Uh, that, like that, to me, just sounded exactly like what Sorrento was saying when he said, "Well, when we take control, we're gonna we're gonna make every, we're gonna turn the Oasis into an Apple program. Everything's gonna be done a certain way. There's gonna be guidelines. There's gonna be, you know, we're obviously gonna have to put advertisements because, well, why not? That space is there, and the whole lack of creativity and the out the outlet for creativity." That to me screamed IOI taking control.
0: Okay, and then, so you're afraid that that the watch that the priests would change hands into the hands of IOI, and that this desolate world would be what would happen if yeah. IOI took control. Yeah, and that IOI would...
1: and that IOI are the priests of the temples of Searings.
0: Oh, and, that's and, and that's that, interesting.
1: And that the unnamed protagonist is you know in in Ready Play One, it's it's someone like Parzival. It's a Gunter. It's the it's the noble, the noble Gunther, the nameless noble Gunther, because, you know, he's the one that in the song, you know, finds this guitar and teaches himself how to play it and says, look what I have found, this thing that makes this beautiful music. And then the priests say, fuck that shit, just throw it away. And then what happens in the story is the protagonist kills himself.
0: Mm. Interesting. And what were
1: we talking about in the last couple of chapters? But- yeah. That was where I saw that go.
0: That's neat in that and it's it's also kind of cool that if the story was kind of head in that way, that there's still that parallel, that you have this world that is trying to control you, that this maybe this evolution of a priesthood, that's the problem. The problem isn't the creativity that brings you there. It's the controls that eventually find themselves in place to tamper down the creativity in order to use prior creativities to dictate over everyone else. And this rediscovery of creativity as a power, which I would presume then is the discovery of the guitar and, you know, the discovery of the strings and the plucking of the strings create sounds that then eventually lead to music uh, that otherwise would be, would have been the creativity that would have been removed prior. It is, That's interesting because again, I I don't know as much about the background of this particular album. I knew a little bit of the storyline as you've mentioned it, but that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, having listened to it a few times in preparation for this chapter, I really did gain an appreciation for the song and like the that the the part that's called "Discovery," which is when Mm -hmm. he finds the guitar and is like playing around with it and learning how to play and the music actually sounds like you know you hear the guy trying to tune it and he slowly gets better at it and better and then it builds and i was like oh that's really neat it it was a it took a while for me to get into it but i've re- i've always kind of liked the temples of searing the the first part uh i believe it's called temples of searing is it called that yeah yeah so the first part the temples of searing's I remember when Ryan put that in his mix for his uh, Spotify playlist for the ride to Columbus. Yeah. So I downloaded that list to my, my phone. And then every time I would listen to that song, like if I was on, on the train going to or from work, I'd be sitting there like bobbing my head, mouthing the lyrics. And I was like, I got really, I really liked that part of the song. I was like, we are the priests of the temples of Searings. And, The other parts didn't really make it. Is that
0: that what the people on the train would hear you? Like, mumbling in the corner? No, I I would
1: just mouth it. I would not sing it. I am not a singer. As you could plainly see.
0: (laughs) That would be fucking creepy. You should do that, dude. We are the priests of the Temple Series. You know, kids nowadays do not know anything about Rush. they just be looking at you. They would give you, like, wide berth when you come off the train.
1: People generally do that anyway, and I feel like I'm one of the (laughs) normal ones on the train.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... I'm going to wrap through. Is that cool?
1: On 2112?
0: Sure. Well, not the whole thing, but just to keep pressing ahead.
1: Yeah, let's move forward. we got a lot to go through.
0: Oh, yeah. So the hint here is that he needs to go to Megadon. He reads through the vignette and it it brings out the city of Megadon and brings that up and that becomes painfully obvious. That's where he needs to go. And here's a trope that is used throughout the book, that if it's a place that was intended for you to find and and might have the key or a gate in it, guess what? There are going to be a lot of fucking copies of it. Sure enough, there are 1,024 copies of Megadon. <gasps> wow. Done, dun, dun. You could almost do a search. Hmm, bring up all the worlds that have a eh, shitload of copies of it that happen well, to be divisible by eight. Well, see,
1: that's the thing. Like, There's clearly a pattern. There were 256 instances of the town of Middleton Mm-hmm. There are 512 instances of Zork, and now there's uh,
0: 1,024 instances
1: of Megadon. Right, so, just
0: like there would be 1,024 bytes in a kilobyte.
1: Exactly. So what I'm wondering is, why didn't anybody see this pattern and say, let's just see where in the Oasis there's 1,024 instances of something? And better yet, to that point, why doesn't anybody think about looking for what has 2,000 48 instances in the Oasis.
0: Well, that's fine. But like the next place really just leads us to, well, we'll get I there. know,
1: but uh, I've, I've always had this, like this fantasy of a, what's the word? Chicken. No, not a Duck?
0: chicken. Robin.
1: The fan hey. so of a fan fiction where a, some gunters go out and see that there's this thing that there's 2048 instances of. And what would that thing be?
0: Oh, like the potentially the East egg that didn't quite make it.
1: Yeah. Or it like the fourth <laughs> gate. That was never,
0: eh, I was going to develop it into four, but eh, it didn't work out. I, I got a really
1: didn't. shitty diagnosis yesterday. I'm running out of time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to die before I finish the fourth key. Now, gate. Eh, so, so the worst thing number. about
1: that is he's got to rewrite all, many of the clues because they're all based on three things.
0: No, he so it doesn't. He just nests a different clue, a, an additional clue, into the third one, and he's fine.
1: Well, but it's all like three different keys open three different gates. So if he had planned oh. on four, he couldn't say—it's all has four different keys open four different gates.
0: Just doesn't seem right. Just no. Have plus
1: three—three's just about the right number for this kind of thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so the city of Megadon is an abandoned city. It is uh, tethered to the the, the planet and it has this massive cracked dome uh, and it's abandoned. So there's nobody around. He's all alone pretty much in this city, just wandering the empty streets.
1: So, did did any particular image come to mind for you when he was describing this?
0: Oh, of the dome, the cracked dome? Yeah. That's, or... that's anchored. I, I was imagining a floating city that's anchored to the top of this mesa. Uh, I... When he said angered, I felt like, like by a chain. But I don't know if it was like that, the that, city that, is actually that... on top of the Mesa, or fuck if I know.
1: That wasn't what came to my mind. Well, two things came to mind when he was describing Megadon. Mm. One was Planet Doom from the movie Ready Player
0: One. Right, right, desolate, dry. Yeah. And yeah. then, because
1: he was talking about, a, it reminded him of a 1950s paperback book with a domed city on it. Which I tried to find but couldn't, but it I, made I imagine
0: me... like a city on a planet, like the moon, like yeah, a Jones city on the moon or some shit. You know,
1: what specifically came to mind to me was the movie The Time Machine. You ever seen that?
0: With Rod Maybe, Taylor? I think I saw bits of it.
1: So when he travels to the <laughs> year eight hundred two seven hundred one, mm-hmm. and he's in the land of the Eloy and the Murlocs, or Murlocs, Morlocks, Morlocks. God, I haven't seen that in a long time. They they all kind of congregate in this kind of domed room. It's not really a city, but it's this big dome, and you can kind of see it off in the distance as he's traveling through time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, you know, he sees it get built, and it's it's pristine and it's you know fresh. And then as he's go- he's going through time really fast, and then you see the the dome kind of crumble a little bit, and there's cracks in it. That that's what came to mind to me.
0: Interesting. All right, it's it's been a long time since I've seen. I think I saw that on HBO in the late '80s, maybe. Unless you yeah. are talking about a more recent. version. No,
1: it' not the more recent version because uh,
0: that one you was a little... with the steampunkish looking machine, right? Yeah, the one with the little, yeah.
1: the little spinny, uh, mm-hmm. the the dinner looks plate like in the playing, back.
0: Looks like he's playing Wheel of Fortune behind him or some exactly, shit. exactly, or... yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's a it's a great movie. And, I mean, it's from like the, must have been, I think it was the 60s. Okay. The Time Machine movie. Enter it into the Google, not the 2002 version, 1960.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. Well, maybe, I don't know. I I know I've seen bits of it. Yeah. But we're talking Give a little really far off my memory. But an abandoned city, massive cracked dome. And I thought it was interesting. He said that in the center is a tower obelisk shaped temple. Now, here's a cool factoid. In Egypt, obelisks were placed in pairs, flanking the doors to temples. And the obelisks themselves were believed to be the essence of the god that was Aden. And it was believed to be petrified rays of the sun god coming down and striking the earth. And they believed that those obelisks had the essence of Adon within them, thus, you know, flanking the entrance to... A temple might be considered kind of like, you know, the eyes, the sight of God in physical representation striking down or, or coming to the ground, anyone who walks between the sight of God, I suppose, is the gist here. Now, the thing that I thought is kind of interesting here is that as he walks in to this temple, he also describes the supercomputers as being obelisk-shaped. And, again, we're kind of, there's a sort of a theme that's going on. And was something we had talked about previously was this concept that maybe in future books, that maybe Anorak would be a part of the Oasis, that maybe the final writing of Halliday into the system was a, an uber-detailed copy of himself. And this this concept of the ghost in the machine, not just that when you move from key to key, you've got this slightly intelligent version of Anorak, like a video, like you get to this place, you press a button, you see a video. Oh hey, congratulations, kiddo. You say your name. Did a great job. You know what I mean? Uh but that maybe it there really is kind of this ghost in the machine effect. That maybe God is within the obelisk. That is the servers of the Oasis. Yeah. And I I thought there was kind of a neat description or parallel being described here because all of these servers are running as he walks down the middle of this temple to the altar what were we gonna say
1: i i just thought it was kind of funny reading this over and over again he's talking about these big computers filling the walls and being Hmm. huge and i'm like i bet you an iphone could do exactly what those computers do (laughs) well it really dates the 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 narrative to some degree because at that point in time when this was written which was what mid 70s like a supercomputer had to be one of those things that filled the room
0: right 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 oh no you're absolutely right uh when nasa brought in their super super supercomputers they 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 sent someone to a moon room yeah well well they replaced the manual programming, or the manual programmers, or the manual, quote-unquote, computers. The the, the people who did the calculations for sending people to the moon were called computers. Thus, computers replaced computers. The machine replaced the human, but they were both called computers. And the gist was that the computers, the machine computer, could calculate faster than human computers could, as far as the calculations they needed for for orbital mechanics and and getting people to the moon and in orbit and whatnot but yes they took up entire fucking rooms and your phone that's that's on your desk or in your hand right now is tens of thousands possibly millions of times faster than an entire room that nasa had dedicated to to machine computers in the early 60s or late 60s early 70s uh, and that's just, it, it sounds like, ah, oh, Chris, you're just a millions of times faster. Oh, it was gargantuous. Calculatably, millions of times faster.
1: Yeah, as far as processes per second or whatever the metric is.
0: When I say literally, I don't mean it as in like everyone else says, man, I literally had 200 sandwiches for lunch. I'm so full. No, 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 you meant that metaphorically, dumbass. No, I literally mean... Millions of times faster in regards to calculations per second, in regards to the amount of space that it holds uh, across the board, across the board. Uh, so, yes, true, you know, rooms filled, gargantuous, and a person walks in with an iPhone, and this is way more, you know. Just...
1: Yeah, it's like, <laughs> fuck your supercomputers, I got a fucking iPhone.
0: What I liked, though, was that the supercomputers described in the book were also in the shape of obelisks, and this concept of God being in the machine, or Halliday being in the machine, this concept of, of using obelisks as a symbol that has that symbolic uh, root is just it's just, again, another set of points where you can start drawing lines and going, there, again, there's another thread of gold, another seam of gold in the rock. That is the storyline that, again, kind of reemphasizes this idea of God in the machine or Halliday potentially being in the machine.
1: So while we're talking about Halliday, there was one part uh, in the book leading up to where we are at now that bothers me. And not wow. like not like it, not like it, it just kind of, it's when Parzival says that he knew that this planet was designed by Halliday because it matches the world described in the liner notes. That's all he says. That's what gives him the confidence that this was a holiday designed planet. And this was going to be where he was going to find the crystal key.
0: He also says that the author of the world was was anonymous. Was anonymous.
1: Yeah. But when he says, I knew it had to be designed by holiday because it matched the world described in the liner notes. It's like, well, so the fuck what?
0: (laughs) I think they've mentioned it. I'll take, I'll take the opposite point on this.
1: Okay, please do convince me otherwise. Convince
0: me otherwise. It's already been mentioned that Halliday pays extra special attention to shit that he designs. That the blades of grass, the ants crawling on the wood on trees, that they're all have they all have this extra special level of detail that most other worlds do not, you know. Uh, okay,
1: so so you're saying that because it was clear that the level of design was so explicit
0: mm-hmm. and
1: exact that it had to be Halliday. Sure. That, that's what you're saying. I'm, is...
0: at, I'm at least saying that I could see how Parzival could make that assumption if that was the case. Yeah. Because he doesn't okay. come off and say it's hugely detailed like that one other place. He just says it's, it's done exactly to the specifications per...
1: Yeah, so... Now, now,
0: if Billy Joe Bob, who's sitting in his, in his closet in his mom's trailer on stack number 32, uh, loves Rush as much as anyone, as anyone would who's following Halliday and he's building a world dedicated to the love of Rush, Billy Joe Bob and stack 32 might also give the same amount of level and love and detail and obsession to, to this planet. So I, I could imagine that anyone. Might have made this planet to that kind of specification after but that, the fact. but
1: but they would want credit for it.
0: But I think they would want credit for it exactly. Okay, like They would make yeah. a place of such great detail and not claim credit for it?
1: I I think uh, given that I wasn't actually uh, going to go
0: there, but you pretty much well, completed it for me.
1: <laughs> but get, given that perspective, that it was be, that it could be that the it was the attention to detail, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, combined with the fact that it was an anonymous author is what really tipped them off. I will I will accept it. I will accept that answer.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, okay, actually now I'm convinced. I'm more convinced now.
1: Uh I'm glad I brought it up
0: because I can see that cuz I think Gunters are in it for the name too, right? Oh, yeah. For the branding. Yeah. Right? The, the reputation a, that comes it's along glory. with it. It's a glory. The glory what's the point of glory if nobody knows that you're glorious really uh
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right so so anyway he's in he's in the planet megadon and he Mm -hmm. and he says i was standing before the temple of syrinx Mm -hmm. and i when will wheaton reads this it's like he's so awestruck by it like Like, first of all, it is not the Temple of Syrinx. This is one of a thousand and twenty four instances of the Temple of Syrinx.
0: Well, yeah, it's the same code. It's a a copy of the code placed in a different place.
1: Well, we're talking about digital code. This isn't like I was standing in front of the pyramids of Giza. I was standing at the Eiffel Tower. No, you're standing at a digital copy of something. Let's just dial it back a little bit.
0: <laughs> Calm the fuck down, Parzival. <laughs> it,
1: it's like saying, oh, uh, uh, like you're looking at a picture of the Mona Lisa. It's like, I'm standing before the Mona Lisa.
0: No, you are not, motherfucker. <laughs> what is it like you're standing before a print? Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah.
1: It was like, ooh, I got a postcard of the something really pretty. And it's like, oh, look, I'm." it's like I'm there. You're not there
0: you you're 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 really lessening i feel like you're downplaying the the moment
1: well i i like, guess what i'm saying is that maybe it's a copy of
0: the actual code like there is no distinguishable difference from the first code like if you had a a copy of the mona lisa but it was the mona lisa like it was not just a print but it was the same paint the same age done by the same person who only did it once but for some weird reason you put it in and it made it into the duplication machine and made an exact duplicate. Now, there are two copies of the Mona Lisa, but it is the Mona Lisa
1: okay. where I'm going to go no. with this one to try okay. to to try to save it is that <laughs> <laughs> perhaps what this is really showing is just how much to someone like Parzival or like a real Gunter that things in the oasis are the most important thing in their life that the Oasis is the only reality that matters because right. even, even digital code of something has, you can hold it in such reverence.
0: Can you think of something in the real world where you feel the same way that Parzival felt as it was described in the book? I'm standing in front of the fill in the line uh, for you. What's, and what is your Mecca? If you will,
1: my Mecca, that's a weird question to ask me. Um, the, so yeah, you're saying like something that I could see in the real world that's, that just... um
0: That would strike awe in you. Well, I mean... Be it it's weakness, <sighs> it's originality, it's inspiration, how it affects you, how it has affected you.
1: Well, for me, it's, and I'm going to use a very recent example because it's the most prevalent thing you're in not, my you're mind right now.
0: You're not allowed to use your meeting with Ernest Klein.
1: No. I was going to say, you know, I, I'm an architect in the real world. Mm-hmm. I spent many years studying architecture, architectural history, studied a lot of buildings in my life and very recently got to go visit some of them.
0: Ooh! Oh, in Italy?
1: Yes. So I got to see the Colosseum. I got to see the Pantheon. I got to see uh, the church in Florence. These are all buildings that you know if i went upstairs and grabbed the sketchbook off of my uh, bookcase i could find sketches that i did of these buildings from photographs but they're still sketches of photographs mm. and i can tell you that at each of these buildings and the one even the ones i didn't mention when you're there in the actual thing it's a completely different experience you just see you, you get so much more sense of the scale of these things like these were fucking big buildings like I think like for the, the church in Florence, like you see it in pictures and you get, you get a sense of it. But when you're standing there in front of it, and you realize just how fucking big it is. It, yeah. it, it's just, it's very different. It's, it is kind of awe inspiring. Cause then you remember how long ago these buildings were built and it was like, Whoa, hold on a how minute did, here.
0: How did they do that?
1: Yeah. And just the, the amount of detail, the, the effort. Uh, oh my God. Uh, and, like you, you will never get buildings like that today, because well, for one, the amount of money and the, uh, the amount of public interest in that kind of a building when they're not being forced to necessarily like, well, we need when to when they're mi-
0: not slaves. Go on when they're not
1: slaves. When they're not <laughs> saying, well, we're gonna levy all these taxes on you because we we got to build this really big church for this egotistical, you know, church leader guy. Like, that doesn't happen right now, at least not in, in America, I don't think, right?
0: No, I haven't been no, well.
1: I haven't been asleep at the wheel too long, have I?
0: No, I don't think so. But, you know, like— Not, it, not very often. Like, I, think, uh, I think sometimes the churches themselves, maybe, would be kind of considered like that thing. Some of them get pretty big, man. Uh, but I get you. I understand what you're saying. Is that just the level of detail, the level of effort, the amount of money—hell, let's just even say, like, the, the scope of skill— I say it's outside of our ability. It's just not, doesn't make any sense to make. Like maybe like sky, skyscrapers would be the next big thing there as far as size and, and scale and technology yeah. and effort. taken to that level. But I get you. Okay, so for you, the awe is in what you know that all builds up to appreciating something that on the surface, most people can't appreciate at the depth that you can because of your job. Like, you know way more about what it would take to do that, and that is even way more impressive given that period of time. Whereas most people come up and go, wow, that's a really big fucking building. Yeah. It's beautiful. Like, you can appreciate the the beautifulness and the grandeur, but there's meta depth and information that makes it even more awe-inspiring that, that just, you know, tickles the insides with reverence. Ooh, <laughs> tickles. I mean, seriously, is that a good description? Yeah, no, that's fair. Okay. Okay. I can but, see that.
1: I... But, but even just the, you know, taking it down to its simplest terms, knowing something just by photograph or painting or whatever, that especially something that has a level of grandeur to it, it doesn't replace being at the actual thing.
0: Sure. Because being there is an experience. Having a picture in front of you is just information.
1: It, well, it and it's a snapshot of someone what someone else thought was the important thing about it. It's sure. Because like, people take a picture of what they find interesting about something, so that's that person's experience. But when you're there, you're making your own, right? And you're and you're there and you're feeling it. So and here's that's why. Yeah. Go so ahead. Parzival being in front of the Temple of Syrinx, and especially since he's super big fan of Rush. That for him, even though it's all digital, it's ones and zeros. It's this semi-religious experience for him.
0: I'd say it's almost like a double religious experience because not only is it experience. well, not well, not only is it a, the temple of of um, serings from Rush, but it is to a certain degree the temple built by the hands and the imagination of of, of Holiday. Holiday was so the. Is, uh,
1: Halliday was the artisan, the the mason, the
0: digital mason, he's the architect. Yeah, he, he's he is the core. He's the core architect that took the concept from the music and the lyrics and turned it into a visual experience. So now you're now you're experiencing Rush through the artisanal eyes of the ultimate Rush fan, and the even even more awe inspiring. It's you know double layer of of temple of religious experience.
1: I hadn't even thought about the fact that that this is parzival entering a temple built by the guy who is in his eyes as close to jesus christ as anybody
0: yeah yeah and and this is a temple kind of to him to an extent, or temple from him maybe it's the best way to put it he does uh, he does himself. say
1: that um um that halliday refers to him as the gods of the north
0: that's fascinating
1: yes oh
0: how did i skip over that yeah good point wow huh It just adds more to it. Uh, But we'll we'll circle back around. So he gets up to the altar, and what I thought was unusual is that he says, it appears that I was supposed to place something on the altar, an offering. But what kind of offering? To this felt a little unusual, because having come from a Catholic background, I never walked up to an altar and thought, hmm, I should set some shit here.
1: Well, maybe you should go back into a time machine 2,000 years. They might have done some Something's a little differently than different. Well,
0: that's true. Okay. All right. I can, I guess I, can. I just, I wasn't sure if there was something in the lyrics where offerings were made up to an altar of some sort.
1: Well, it's also a bit of a weird observation for him to make, seeing as he's, you know, so not, he's very anti-religion and much like Halliday was. Mm-hmm. So what would make, what would give him the inspiration to think that he's got to make an offering? Unless it's just all the exposure to movies and stuff where that kind of stuff happened,
0: I would say that while it says that they are not religious or that they are sort of anti-religious, I I think the religious part that they are anti is the use of other people controlling people through someone else's material. So here's here's the difference, right? Rush, in and of itself, per this description, has a religious following. Let's say a religious. Adherence by the people who love it. Now, does that make it a religion? Not necessarily. It could be if somebody then stepped up and said, We're going to make this a religion, and all of a sudden somebody is using this thing, Rush, to control other people through a dictation of organization. But I think it's possible that you can have a religious esque experience, or that a certain theme or a certain concept or, or, Uh, a level of skill, can take on the inspiration that inspires a religious-like experience. So while there is a lot of religious hints or themes, it's not dogmatic. it, It is, in and of itself, its own religious encapsulation. It's not dogmatic in the sense that somebody else is controlling and saying this is how you should be. It is merely the presentation of that which is sacred and then the adherence to that sacredness for that thing that makes it a religious experience. Does that make sense? I'm trying to separate the dogma of religion, which I think is is dictated as bad in the book, from the experience of a a religious or spiritual movement.
1: It's kind of like a secular religious experience. Yeah, it has its own rules. Yeah.
0: But it's not rules dictated by any one person. It literally has inherited its own rules and its own rules are sort of incorporated specifically by the artist. In this case, Rush created this this work, and as a result, it kind of has its own story to tell, and as a result, kind of has its own rules. And uh, and adhering to that, not because you have to or because somebody said you should, but because you appreciate it so much. I'm really just kind of unfolding this. I didn't even really think this part out in advance, but no I, I, I I kind of like the fact that the book has a lot of religious... Religious-like undertones, yet none of it adheres to a dogma. Like right off, that's it's you know, dogma. Ooh, crap! You know, the the, the modern control of the masses through dogma is what I think is poo-pooed on. But that there is a sacredness that's respected across these these various topics and pop culture references. What do you think?
1: I think it's good. <laughs> no, you, right. kept, you kept on saying dogma. I was I was thinking about Kevin Smith.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, he does belong in the book.
1: Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> All
0: right, so back to the lyrics. The lyrics take him from the altar, which evident. and I get it, you walk up to the altar and you think, okay, I'm supposed to be here, I've got to do something. All of this is like you're prompted to do something. So maybe I see where there's the idea that you feel prompted to do something. Maybe at an altar you sacrifice something or you give up something, but I can see why nothing really worked. Even putting the little, the little robot on top of it. Not so much.
1: At least he tried.
0: At least he tried. So he goes back to the lyrics and that is where the Discover song, I guess, pops in. Where we're talking about Discovery. Sorry. Where the waterfall comes into play. So he goes off and finds the waterfall somewhere within the city off to the east, I think. uh, Where he goes behind the waterfall. Quick note, I thought it was really fucking cool that his haptic suit tried to simulate a waterfall coming down. Yeah, uh,
1: I I had a a similar note about that and how, uh, but it feels like being like, uh, being hit with a bunch of sticks.
0: That's what it fucking feels like. Yeah. That that is what it feels like. I mean, I've I've been through and and under small waterfalls, mind you, but that is what it feels like. It it, it you know it feels like gallons and gallons coming down on you, in thin streams. It it, it water has some serious fucking weight. Mm-hmm. And you give it some momentum; it smacks you hard in small places. That sounded odd.
1: You, you got to watch out for those small
0: places. Hold on a minute. Feels like someone pounding my head and shoulders with the back of a bundle of sticks. I actually think that that is, based on my experience, pretty adequate. Like it is not accurate. like going and taking a, it. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's sorry I think it's accurate, and it's an adequate description. Uh, it, that's what it feels like. Not. When you're under a shower, but when you have thousands of gallons pouring over you, coming straight down.
1: Yeah, I can't say that I've actually walked through a waterfall because the one time that I could have, mm. I was I was still wearing glasses, like that, t- to actually uh, see. And I was like, yeah.
0: uh, no. Don't feel like losing those. Don't. Hmm. Yeah. No. Not so much. So he finds this worn stalagmite, pushes it, and opens a trap door. Well,
1: before we move on, have you ever been to a cave with stalagmites in it? And I have. That's yes. fucking cool. It is. It's really it is fucking cool. cool. And, and it's living chilly. in Tennessee,
0: it's it is. It's nice. It, living in Tennessee, particularly when it's hot, and you go down there, and it's like sixty some odd degrees. Oh, you have some in Tennessee. Oh shit! Several. Oh my god! Yes, dude. Oh, oh it's I didn't fantastic. Know that's fantastic. That. There, there are dozens of places. There are dozens of of caves that are open to the public. Absolutely. Next time you come down this way, we'll just go fucking find one. Like there's plenty yeah. of places it... that are open with tour guides. There's one called. Uh, shit, it's a, it's a, I don't remember, but it's an underground lake. Like they stocked it with fish, Believe believe. And Well, they did it so that they could track the fish to see if, if it went anywhere else under the water, like if there weren't other cave systems. That was their early way of tracking before they threw on the scuba gear and went looking for themselves. But they have flat bottom boats that when you get down to the bottom of this cave and they've got part of the cave is, is uh, half filled with water, that they've got flat bottom boats, boats that they'll take you on and kind of circle around through the cave. And then feed the fish. You can see the fish come up. It's freaking awesome.
1: Yeah, I. It's been twenty years since I was in a, a cave with the stalagmites and, and stalactites, but it was fucking cool. It's been
0: twenty years.
1: The wolves yeah, it, it is actually, me.
0: It's
1: actually, actually, it's been 20, 22 years.
0: They taught me the waves of their pack. I became the alpha dog amongst their pack once. But yeah, <laughs> then they I came they, they the are cave. pretty cool. Oh no, they're they're awesome. If you ever come down to Tennessee, man, we'll go check them out. But yes, that they, they are neat, and there are some that are worn down, and I, I imagine this because normally stalactites and stalagmites, uh, the stalagmites, they the tops aren't usually smooth. Uh, oftentimes, it's kind of looks like a, a a muddy ant pile that's like maybe three, four, or five feet tall if they don't meet in the middle. Uh, but but you get some where the traffic has gone through that they've actually rubbed the top where they've touched it. Like there was one that I went through and I was called like the, the cow's udder or some shit like that, but it was rubbed down, but they allowed you to touch it for good luck. Evidently because so many people had already done it. They didn't care. Normally you can't touch this shit. Yeah. Uh, But I imagined reading this, that there was just a one with the top that was worn down from touching, but then he, he pushes the stalagmite and it opens a trap door. He uses his, uh, Wand like, to basically clear it out to make sure there are no traps. Yeah,
1: how convenient is that little wand, huh?
0: <laughs> well, I, my initial thought was that it wasn't convenient so much as, you know, if how they didn't want it to work, then it wouldn't work. <laughs> I think this is more of a
1: uh, this is more of a sign of the level of paranoia that he he's kind of put on himself at this point.
0: Oh, sure, and and the fact that I think part of the writing is that somebody might think, well, wait a minute. How would, how would he know it's not a trap? It's like, well, if he pre-thought that argument, he'd be like, well, he would have like in his bag of holding a wand to kind of clear out potential traps. Cause who knows, maybe it is. So maybe how was like, if you're a sucker enough to get into a hole, you deserve to die. You
1: know? Well, so you're a programmer. You, you understand uh-huh. this kind of stuff. So, if he has a wand that's basically checking the code to see if it's a trap doesn't that mean that the programmer of the trap has to say tag trap
0: <laughs> um it could be like antivirus software that looks for patterns and then interprets those patterns in a certain way
1: okay so there is an actual way of doing it other than saying like oh i'm going to i'm going to code a trap so i got to make sure i i tag it as a as a trap
0: uh if if i was comparing it, if i was comparing it to like antivirus software virus software doesn't tag itself as i'm a virus virus software does specific things that communicate that it might be virus software uh it's either already known so we're beyond a a zero day event and it has a certain naming convention or it has a random naming convention or it's something that's unusual nested in a series of files where that file wouldn't exist little shit like that
1: so he's running antivirus software Essentially,
0: <laughs> like an antivirus worm, like an antivirus wand. Yeah, yeah, kind of. I guess. I guess that's one way to put it. Sure. uh Yeah, I could. I could kind of see that. I suppose. So he crawls down into the hole, and lo and behold, there is a a square rock, and within it is a 1974 Gibson Les Paul guitar, just like the one that Alec Lifeson used during his 2112 tour. And I'm trying to imagine this because, did I, did my understanding this correctly? It's the neck in the rock, right? Yeah. So it's just the body of the guitar uh, uh, poking out of this square rock. Yeah. Well, I I,
1: I imagine that the neck with the tuning forks, like, is what's encased in the rock. And then the rest of the neck of the guitar is, is shooting out with the body on top.
0: Right. That's like a giant, like a lollipop stuck in a rock.
1: Almost like a sword in a stone.
0: Like a lollipop stuck in a rock uh because th- yeah okay like a sword and a stone sure uh because i would imagine the handle to be like the neck so for me it, it seems up it seems odd that like a lollipop stuck in a rock is what i'm imagining at least yeah so he gets, it, he gets on top go ahead
1: i was gonna say it, it almost seems like a little reverse like you would want to have the base of the guitar in there and maybe i just have haven't picked up on the uh the wording in the book but like i always p- picture it with the the neck of the guitar with the tuning uh knobs the on it as knobs, what's in yeah. the stone
0: yes well yes and that's how i interpreted it in this description as well it just seemed awkward uh like i can imagine getting on the rock and trying to grab the body of the guitar like a sword is like a fucking handle you just grab the handle and pull
1: yeah well because if you, if you if you're pulling out this guitar and the the body of the guitar is in the stone that's a little bit more awkward to like you pull it out, and now you have this very heavy end at
0: like an axe.
1: Yeah, it's a little yeah. bit more awkward.
0: At least imagine an axe, ching, ching. <laughs> so he pull, pulls, pulls the guitar out, swing, which, <laughs> which then eventually hums to this loud, roarous power note on the guitar. So it's wrong. I guess is how that goes. Something that's, yeah, that, that's was exactly not a very... how I pictured it. is that did you imagine hearing me say that
1: in your voice
0: wow that's both uh uncanny and disturbing so he pulls that out and he is inspired in the moment to play it
1: well well, no he's ready to make a beeline and he says you know what let's try something
0: fuck it i'm just gonna play we're just gonna take a moment and have some fun with this
1: yeah why not i got no i got all the time in the world."
0: And he ends up playing the song Discovery, or at least like a couple chords from it. And at this point, it kind of reminded me of the movie Goonies when they had to play the piano of bones. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. In order to get past the next point. But anyhow, what did you what did you think of the strong and then let's play a tune?
1: So what came to my mind in this was uh, this is another throwback to when we were talking about chapter six was on top of all the things he was researching and reading and watching and all that stuff. He is also learning how to play guitar.
0: Okay. If I am play devil's advocate again. Well,
1: it's, he was learning, he was studying a lot of material and yet he also had to learn guitar. Now, as someone who tried to learn guitar self-taught many, many years ago, it's not that Mm -hmm. easy. And I grant that I didn't have the tools of the Oasis to help me learn, but it's a time consuming effort. So, but if, if you're watching all these eighties pop culture references and studying up on them enough to be experts at them and memorize them and play all the video games and beat them. Mm -hmm. I don't know. To me, it just makes that list in chapter six, even a little bit more unbelievable.
0: Unbelievable. Okay, fine. But, but to play devil's advocate there, have you ever played Rocksmith?
1: Rocksmith or rock? Um, not rock band. But rock. Oh, rock, rock. I love rock bands. Rocksmith. I don't know Rocksmith. Is that the same rock thing? Rocksmith.
0: No, it's not. It's a little different. Uh, Rocksmith uses a real guitar. You plug your guitar oh. into from from your your audio jack into the USB port, and you play your guitar with the song. Your guitar. The, all of a sudden, the Xbox or whatever you're using becomes the amp, and it gauges your accuracy based on whether or not you hit the notes. Literally, whether or not you hit the notes.
1: That is fucking awesome.
0: It is fucking awesome. And it advances, so it becomes more difficult. It opens up more notes to the song as you become better at it as it as it realizes that you're getting more stuff right to the point where you are playing the real song for realsies while playing the game. For real real not for play play. For real real. Yeah. So we're going from simple notes to complex. So this is a whole uh, other that level. That sounds
1: awesome. Man, why did they mess. have that when I was trying to learn?
0: They got it now. I, I, bought, I bought and played guitars so that I could play that game. I've not played in like six months, but mostly because I've been moving. But it's fun as hell. And you can, get, like, you can have two people play. So you can have one person sing and another person play bass. You can have one person play bass and another person play guitar. It's freaking awesome. And it has games within it so it's got these mini games to teach you um uh what is it different runs basically to teach you different runs and to teach you how to like you know do different techniques but it's in video game style so they've got like this like a burger time and and something else so it's like a, a a temple run some shit like that but you're using your guitar to handle the controls it's super fucking cool
1: i'm trying to watch a video of uh just right on the rocksmith website and watching these people like day one ugh, i don't know what to do they're holding the guitar wrong and all that stuff yeah and, then they're, wait, that was and then they're jamming
0: like 30 days later they're like doing pretty good and they have the worst habits in the world but they're doing pretty good
1: yeah yeah
0: that, that i've i loved it i still love it um, i want to see
1: what and, gameplay looks like stop showing me these people that are pretending to be players of the game show me the gameplay
0: now nah, you gotta go to youtube dude you gotta you gotta look up like users who have done this. It's better that way. It's going to be more authentic at least. But it covers a a wide range. So to the point, I could see as an excuse to play guitar like playing a video game. The excuse would be, well, if I'm really going to know what it's like to be Halliday and Halliday had a hobby of playing guitar occasionally, uh, I'm going to learn how to play a little bit. And what better else to play than Rush? Be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes! Party on, dudes! I
1: just rewatched that, so it's very fresh in my mind.
0: (laughs) I did not. Uh, I did not know that you just watched it. Recently watched it in the last month or so. But but that's 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 still. I mean, so I could see if he was going to squeeze it into his gameplay, that that's what he would do because he did say that he could shred in VR, in the Oasis, that he'd never touched one in the real world. So I was kind of like, that's that's kind of interesting. You still watching?
1: Yeah, I turned it off because I figured I was going to miss something you were saying. I'll have to watch some of that later, but I was like, damn, that looks cool.
0: Yeah, dude, bring your guitar. We'll plug in. If and I, we can we can totally jam to someone else? I sold
1: song. my guitar like 20 years ago.
0: You can borrow one of mine. I have one made out of a, a cigar box.
1: Oh, no kidding. Cool.
0: I kid you not. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so in that in, in that instance, I could see the rationale where he he's playing it like a video game, and that's just part of his repertoire. If I'm gonna play video games. I, I might as well combine it and learn to play guitar. Coincidentally, it worked. It did something. It gave him a clue. And I like here that it, it it's interesting in thinking about this because I'm trying to think about this from the perspective of Ernest trying to write it. Why wouldn't Why wouldn't I O I have figured it out by now, right? They've gone past this. We know the, the, they've gone past this. They've gotten this clue. Why wouldn't they have figured it out by now? And it's neat how it reflects that he assumes here that because they probably didn't play, that they didn't get this additional hint.
1: I, well, I that think that's completely They'd across that, the
0: rock. Yeah.
1: Why, why would they? they? They'd do exactly what he said. As soon as they got the guitar, get the hell out of there, get the fucking crystal key, and then not tell anybody the where heck? the hell it is.
0: Head the fuck on. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the longer you're there, the more risk there is of being well, found. So well, yeah, you want to leave in, as soon as possible.
1: And in some ways, Parzival even stopping to think of it is wasting valuable seconds. True. Like,
0: true. Uh, but I, I, I and the is reality kind of is that
1: it wouldn't be really coming down to seconds. But yeah, it's, he's, in some ways, he's wasting time.
0: And and I think this kind of harkens back to Brian's accusation occasionally that maybe there's some retconning that happens in the book. Yeah, that, I can see to, this as a retcon. You know, you write yourself into a place where you're like, hmm, this is weak-ass sauce. There's got to be a, re- a better reason, a better reason for them not having got past this point. And then to go back and say, okay, I'm going to add this additional thing in this place. Now, keep in mind, like there were no hints that we know of in the rest of the book. I say we that we know of, like we didn't read the whole fucking book, but I mean, like, assuming the world and the book, like maybe there were hints that they just didn't get, maybe there were hints that just weren't picked up, like maybe Billy that was hot on on the heels of the 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 high five did come across these other hints and interpreted them wrong. I'd love to hear the book about Billy, <laughs> the kid who almost the kid who almost won the egg, hmm. right Billy uh Billy, he almost got it. And that maybe he like uncovered some additional things that Paracel did not. That would be a fun book.
1: There, there's Billy so much up. opportunity for some good fanfic with this book.
0: <laughs> it's I just... Think it just would be humorous. Billy the fuck up. You know, Billy the fuck up, and how he almost got the Easter egg, or how he almost got the the golden egg.
1: Everyone loves the story of the guy who almost won.
0: Sure, especially if he's a screwball, uh, and then accidentally stumbles into shit. Like he's in the cave trips and actually falls onto the, the stalagmite and it, it bends. Oh, fuck. Or no. Anyhow, anyhow moving on. So, so far off path at this point. Yeah, let's move on. So he places the guitar on the altar and that turns into the crystal key with the only hint on the key being the monogram of letter A. And it's the same monogram that's on Anorak's robes. It's the same monogram that is on the front of Castle Anorak. And when he comes out, Back to his ship. Sure enough, in the news threads, they're in, I'm going to fuck this up, Chithonia? Chithonia. Is it Chithonia?
1: It's just Thonia.
0: Well, no, wait, there's a CH, isn't there?
1: No, there's some, there's another.
0: Is there a silent Chithonia? Is there, the CH is silent?
1: No, there is no CH. There is a Chithonia somewhere on the intertubes, but Thonia in the book is uh, just Thonia.
0: Hold, hold, Hold on a minute. Hold the phone. Hold the phone. Because I I copied it. It's in the book, it's it's called it's spelled c h H O N I A.
1: I haven't actually read the book in so long that I may have forgotten that.
0: Yes, it's the planet and I must be pronouncing it wrong. It's like is that Shithonia? No, no, it's Thonia. The CH is silent.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm and I totally <laughs> screwed that up.
0: I'll go with Thonia. We'll just leave it uh, there. CH okay. is silent.
1: What's his name? The guy who reads the book, Will Wheaton, says Thonia.
0: Okay. All right. I'm sure he looked at it and said, fuck that. Thonia. <laughs> Thonia. That's Okay. CH is silent. Thonia. We'll move on from there. So planet Thonia, where the location of Castle Anorak is. Again, we go back to this common thread, a real common sort of religious esque thread, where he says that Castle Anorak is is a Gunter's mecca, and that Parzival himself had made the pilgrimage there, even though he couldn't enter. No one could enter an impregnable, fo- an impregnable, an impregnable fortress that no one could enter until now, and that it turns out on the news the entire Sixter army is flooded the place, and worse worse not only is the entire army there their entire encampment is there it is surrounded by conveniently enough a huge sphere that no weapon that any of the gunters have tried against that nukes or otherwise magic spells or anything has been able to penetrate the orb of (laughs) osuvox orb of osuvox it's impenetrable uh, indestructible and can vaporize anything that touches it so, and it can stay up indefinitely, you know, just so long as there's a wizard of level ninety nine that's got his hands on it. Yeah, how? Yeah, you
1: know, that must have been really can, easy for one dude to just be sitting there like la 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 la, holding up. that would be boring
0: as, That would be boring as shit. So I mean, so, like for the first five minutes, it would be great. You must sit in the chair and put your hands on the orb of Box.
1: What happens if his nose yeah.
0: itches? Dude, you got to use your shoulder.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, he's going to the next underling, dude. Scratch my nose,
0: dude. <laughs> like 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 eight hours later, uh like you know, the first five minutes, you feel all powerful sitting on this dais above the on the castle, looking out over the entire playing field, you see this this huge sphere that engulfs you, people are explosives are going off on this sphere you were all powerful eight hours later <sighs> this is uh sketch Am I supposed boring, to do anything else? Just keep your fucking hands on it, man. Christ. That's it?
1: That's, take take my for the team.
0: Take, can I uh Alright, I've been watching the same thing for eight hours. Uh I need a break. Nope. Nope. Yeah, you really can't even that. like
1: surf YouTube doing that. You just gonna have to sit there.
0: Yeah. You're just gonna have to chill, buddy. Keep your hands on it. My arms are getting tired. Uh I don't fucking care. So you know. Bob, so the other level as... 99 is on vacation, and you're our only one right now. I'm sorry. It's Oops. inconvenient. Take one for the team. I think what's interesting is that he recognizes over a period of time, the Gunters have tried everything, and there's this all-hope-is-lost feeling. Like, how are we going to get past this? And I loved this part of the chapter. Yes. he's He has gone from, from wanting to kill himself out of having no hope coming to this one quote which was until an avatar reached halliday's easter egg anything was still possible he knows that there's something they can't figure out and while they have all the time in the world now to figure out how to get past it because they've got it locked down with this orb of osu that now he's got some time to figure out how to take it to the next level and he, he literally says it's like a new level and all new levels require a new strategy for dealing with it. Yeah. And he says, he somehow, it like
1: somehow he managed to keep his cool. Yeah. It's like, thank you. We're back to the good old Parzival. Yeah. he He's not freaking out. It's great.
0: Yeah. Love. It's almost like he recognizes their time is his time. And so long as he feels he has time, he has hope, even if it's a little bit of time. Whereas before, it was just like he was ready to give up. He just he hadn't he hadn't gained the confidence from finding the next thing, but at this point in the book, this is the part that absolutely drove me nuts. I could not have stopped. There are so many cool cliffhanger chapters I could not have stopped at the end of this chapter, yeah, and that's where he says I was going to reach the third gate or die trying and that the next part of his plan and his plan was gonna be wild, probably get him killed and I was like, what, Fuck. but I love the fact that he went. For- I love the fact that he went from the potential of dying due to just helplessness. I'm just going to go up to the top of the building, throw myself off, make a funny noise, and hit the ground. To now this self-sacrifice. What sort of sacrifice for a cause? A martyr. Kind of, right? Yeah. yeah. This whole chapter has had kind of that sort of religious overtone. And uh, and Parzival now being kind of um, well a martyr for the cause know to either your do or die kind of situation that that thing within that you throw yourself completely towards not because you feel hopeless but because you feel empowered like you could like you could make a difference even if the end result was you dying and I kind of I, I dig that I think it goes with the theme of this chapter overall and I really like that there's a lot more confidence in this and it was at this point that I felt that I, this was maybe one of the top three cliffhangers. For me in the book,
1: it was definitely one of the one of those cliffhangers that would have been the candidate for the binging the rest of the book, and I think some of the previous chapters leading up to this one are right up there with it uh I think it was I would say it was one of the last episodes that we did where I think I had said this was the point where i i had to i couldn't stop reading. Mm, um, mm, yeah. It might have been. Uh, it was either chapter twenty-five or twenty-six. But yeah, this is definitely the point in the book where, if you were holding on to this thing, thinking that you were gonna, you know, go to bed and finish it tomorrow, nope,
0: No, nope. you're uh-huh. in. You're stuck. And what that this chapter was like, maybe five pages. Ernest Cline gives me a lot of hope for being a potential author. <laughs> Because you read some other authors that are like thousands and thousands of pages. And like a chapter is like, it feels like a month's worth of work. And here I look at this book and I go, this was just five pages. I could do five pages. I could do five pages in a day. I Hell could do five month, pages 30 book. times. <laughs> exactly. Dude, you, I could do that. So, it so gives me hope. That,
1: so are you going to sign up for uh, NaNoWriMo this year?
0: What's NaNoWriMo?
1: Uh, National Novel Writing Month
0: that's that's the that's what they chose to go by that's their nickname well, nano rimo
1: well, well national n a uh-huh novel n o nano Write, uh-huh. writing r i d r i w r i mo month nano rimo
0: dude i i thought it was like some robin williams uh morgue shit like oh we're gonna rhyme lots of words oh NaNoWriMo. it
1: yeah what? no i i first heard about this because uh an, an independent author uh, who I got into uh, some years ago, the book that basically put him on the map and the whole concept of making you know, a good living selling Kindle books
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, started out as a NaNoWriMo. Huh. It's basically, you write, I think it's like 2,000 words a day uh, for 30 days in the month of November. So you get 60,000 words, which is basically what a novel length is. Yeah. And yeah. and you track it. At least that's what I mean. I think that's how it was described to me. It was like a, something like a 2,000 words a day tracking thing. And you're, uh, you know, that's all I know about it.
0: Yeah. I had heard of a, a theory, which was just sit down and write. Just write 500 words or 1,000 words. It was something, some number, 2,000 maybe. I don't know. I think 2,000 is quite a bit. But it was something like just write a few pages. Just write 500 They can be the shittiest 500 words. They can be great 500 words. Don't worry about it. Just start writing. First, there's a good chance that you will have written more than 500 words. Second, you'll probably have gotten out what you needed to say as far as what you're writing towards. And if you do it every day, it's basically start with a little. You'll surprise yourself. And at the end of what you've done, you will have something. You'll have something. It's the idea of breaking something down into small, bite-sized, un things you're not afraid of. Like, it, it just seems so insurmountable to write something big. But this idea of don't worry about writing something big, write a lot of little small things. And eventually you'll get to that place. So this book gives me that inspiration. I think maybe this chapter was six pages. And, uh, uh, you know, by the end of it, I was just hooked on to listening to the next chapter. I loved how you got in six, five or six pages, you, you created a a new... Cliffhanger for me that drug me into the next chapter. And I just dig that.
1: So he's back to being the good old Parzival, right? He's, you know, he says he's not going to give up, but the end, but in reality, the end is near. It, the The game could be over in no time. Mm-hmm. But he never once says anything in the way of, well, whatever happens, the hunt's going to be Yay! over soon and I can talk to Aramis again. He never says that.
0: Well, yeah, but she's not talked to him yet. So she may, he may have just. Well, yeah,
1: but remember that at one point she said, Well, we can't, you know, yeah, oh, what does she say?
0: Uh-huh. Uh
1: huh. When can we talk again when the hunt is over? But that could take years, so be it. So they've since had a, uh, their parting of ways was a little bit different. So you could presume that they might speak again once the hunt is over. But he never says, Well, the hunt is getting close to being over. Which means I'd be able to talk to Artemis again. So no matter what happens, at least there's that.
0: <laughs> he's not. He's not looking for the consolation prize. No, that's he what he is in it for
1: the hunt now.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's sad to say that his true love is the consolation prize. <laughs> that's that's kind of what it feels like you were going for there. Was if I don't get the if I if I don't if I don't get the Easter egg, at least I'll have Artie. <laughs> I I just
1: like. The Parzival in the beginning, before he's distracted uh-huh. by all the uh, the love story stuff, because I feel like right. a, every good story gets ruined by a love story. Really? Okay. Matrix.
0: And that felt more ruined. like an acting problem. That was more of an acting problem. That's it's. I, I that's if there was some, it could have been better. Could have been better. Well,
1: in any Is case, it, uh, I it, I like it, the good old Parzival. The, the hunting Parzival, you know, shooting the shit with H, having a good time. The, I like that version of Parzival that's not distracted by you know, trying to get laid.
0: I th- I think a good story deals with a fair amount of emotional risk. And you'd think, surely there's got to be enough emotional risk in playing the game and getting the egg for whatever purposes. I like the integration of, of of Artemis being that additional and unexpected emotional risk. Not that that is her sole point in the book, mind you, that's a facet, but it is an additional emotional risk for both of them. Yeah. You know, they found each other to be a distraction. And then that's the risk to playing the game. And of course, whether or not the game ever ends is another risk emotionally in their relationship. That's a unique take on, on, the relationship thing. I don't think it carries on like a lot of other stories do. Yeah.
1: So anyway, after that, he emails everybody and says, here's how you get to where I am. And uh, I'll talk to you later.
0: Which is interesting because to this point, there's always been this sort of respect of everybody kind of finds it their own way.
1: Yeah. Like it but was really th- bizarre to see that turn. And and what was interesting in my mind about this was if they had allied before this point, they could have avoided this debacle
0: yeah yeah possibly and the fact that this additional hint says you can't do it alone so right off the bat he's like this is the next level of the game there's a new boss that we've got to deal with uh and i've got to find a radical new technique for dealing with this and it's going to involve me breaking the rules that i've laid down for myself i've got to step outside of being me and share knowledge about about the hunt that I would never have shared even with my closest friends. But and, in and fact, he of... is
1: now sharing it with his closest friends.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's the radical departure. Two from... of which
1: he hasn't spoken to in a long time because he pissed
0: them off. Yeah, I, I got to imagine that if you get that email, you know, it's probably all cool.
1: So <laughs> what what do you think the subject line was so they wouldn't ignore it? Here's how to get the
0: crystal key. I would think that line would be, so I'm looking at what 30 stories looks like from the top of a roof, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) I'll be singing the theme song to Superman on the way down, (laughs) dot, dot, dot. I'm
1: I'm Uh, just trying to picture, like, how does he get their attention with an email to make sure that they read it? Especially when Artemis is already ignoring him. mm -hmm. He had to come up with, like, the ballsiest subject line to say here's how you do it
0: if you've received this email i may have already died (laughs) wouldn't you open that wouldn't you open that maybe if you've received this email i'm probably already dead (laughs) dot 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 i may be already dead that
1: sounds like the beginning of anorak's invitation sure from the movie anyway if you are watching this i am dead
0: so i well that would that would that would get your attention right
1: maybe Or it just said instructions to get the crystal key.
0: That would fucking get it. Yeah, that would do it, I think. Yeah, that'd probably do it. (laughs) That'd be too much for them to resist. All right. This has been a fun episode. I'll tell you what. I enjoyed this much more than the past two or three chapters. Man, chapter four and five were hard.
1: 24 and five were tough ones. Sorry, 24 and 25 were really tough. 26 was Uh, a while ago. I don't even remember what was going on in it. uh, Neither.
0: I'm not even sure what it was about. Oh, that's right. I had to watch that. that I had to watch. Oh,
1: yeah. Wa- we had uh, to watch Blade Runner.
0: Yeah, I had to watch Blade Runner. <sighs> that, show, that movie's kind of rapey. Did you rewatch
1: um, the uh, um, the director's cut, the final cut? No,
0: I need to. I need to. Just, what do you do? Anyhow. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. You've been busy. I've been busy. So this episode has, has uh, been eye-opening, even though I'm not a fan of Rush. Uh, I'm glad we talked about it i'm glad that i reread the chapter Uh, we found some really cool sort of metadata i think streamed through the chapter that speaks to the rest of the book and the rest of the plot but uh, we will be moving on to figuring out what it is that is going on in Arzival's mind that will shake up in this next episode so until then this is chris and this is aaron thank you for getting to the good part we'll catch you on the next episode You're still listening, then you know we add a little bit extra to the end of most of our episodes. And this is no different. As a thank you to our Patreon subscribers, our Get to the Good Part team, we've begun making bonus material. And this is five minutes from our most recent 45 minute bonus track of me popping my cherry on 2112. Truly, I hadn't listened to Rush before this episode, before this chapter. And Aaron and I thought it would be really cool to go through and do a listening party where we stop between movements and we explore each movement and reflect on the song itself and the additional content to just slowly unravel into the shocking end that is 2112. So thank you if you're a Patreon subscriber, and thank you if you're considering becoming a Patreon subscriber. And now, without further ado, here's five minutes from that bonus content. Thank you. Ah, all right, all right. Huh. Okay, very interesting. So I've ha- I've, uh, we've we've it, uh, there was the intimate foreplay there, mm-hmm. and the narrative is starting to expand. So I'm really digging this, and I liked how we shifted back to the same medley, not medley, the same. It's the same song. It's it's this the integration of the same song as the priests of syrinx.
1: Well, it, it, it's kind of a combination of discovery and syrinx.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the song itself is is separated. Yeah,
1: which makes sense because to the Temples of Syrinx is <clears throat> from the perspective of the priests and Discovery mm-hmm. is from the perspective of the protagonist. And now this song is a dialogue between the two.
0: Right, 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 right. So I really dig that. And I and I like the fact that it goes between the protagonist, who is just kind of this sort of humble voice, <laughs> to the priests that are kind of, wee! Squeaking voices i'm a man you know it's, 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 you can see it right it's so it's so uh uh very self-important right just the the way that it's presented song-wise I just it's it's fun it's very pulpit i didn't really think about that but but uh maybe maybe like hardcore rock music is like extreme pulpit style music Right. Mm. I didn't think about that till now, until like it emphasized it in this song and in this particular way. So I, I love it. And then for that last minute of the song, all I could imagine was something like, uh, what was the name of the show? It was Benny Hill. And remember how Benny Hill would run around and the girls would chase him and he'd smack one on the butt and he'd run around and they'd try to beat him with something. I kind of had that image in my mind with this last minute's worth of music where it was just basically somebody shredding on the guitar. So I imagined them kind of running around the church with him with the guitar and then them finally taking it away and smashing it to pieces, much like in, in what was uh, in the descri- in the description, in the initial description. And just that, that initial destroying it into pieces leaves that like weird resonant twang at the very end of the song that goes into silence like we've just killed it. What came into my mind
1: while listening to this while also going through the lyrics very carefully was it just feels like the the silencing of the people. Almost like taking away their freedoms of expression and speech and all that. And it's like, oh, you found this thing. Well, fuck you. You can't – you're not allowed to use this. And then they just crush it like right in front of you like it's
0: just like devouring your soul. Mm. Anything that we don't control is – is what led to the downfall of man, and therefore must be evil. Exactly, is kind of the impression that I had there. It's that threat of the threat of power, the threat that you bring something new, and it must be bad, no matter how beautiful it is, because it's new, it's scary, or it must be associated with something horrible, no matter how beautiful it is. Yeah, I'm sure it resonated pretty well then, and right now
1: I kind of feel like you could draw some parallels, or at least use this song as like a warning.
0: Sure. Yeah. Whenever you give something else an enormous amount of control, anything that diverts your attention from what they give you is a threat. Yeah. It's it's the means for encapsulating power, and you know, it's it's interesting. So again, I'm I'm curious to dive into the next part. Now that we've gone beyond the 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 mutual foreplay, the the general sixty nine of the verbiage of this song, we're going to move into the dream. Yeah. This is this is part five. I hope you enjoyed those five minutes as much as we enjoyed making the 45-minute bonus content as a huge thank you to our Get to the Good Part Patreon team. And again, if you're thinking of becoming a part of the team, just go to patreon.com forward slash get to the good part, no spaces, and do whatever you think is right. And we'll continue to produce awesome content and additional bonus tracks because, let's face it, we just had a kick-ass time making this. Thank you, and we'll catch you in the next chapter.